everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right, today's podcast is about a recently published working paper called Global, Perce- uh, Global Perception Indices. I'll read the whole uh, title. Why India Does Poorly on Global Perception Indices? Case Study of Three Opinion-Based Indices. Freedom in the World Index, EIU Democracy Index, and Variety of Democracy Indices. It was authored by Sanjeev Sanyal and Akansha Arora. And to talk about that paper, I have Sanjeev Sanyal on the podcast. Sanjeev, thank you so much for coming. And uh, first of all, uh, before everybody, I just have to clarify. I emailed a Kushal Sanjeev has never made it on the podcast. So finally, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. At least we have crossed the bridge over there. So uh, thank you for having me on your show. For whatever reason, it didn't work out earlier, but uh, hopefully I will now, uh, I will uh, do more than one so that we are, we make up for lost time. All right. So Sanjeev, let's start with uh, this paper uh, itself. Like uh, when we talk about indices, can you, maybe we can start with a brief background as to what is the role of these different indices that, that they do and why are they important in the sense, because I remember very specifically in the paper where you start the paper by saying you could ignore it too, but, uh, it's ideal not to ignore them, right? That's mentioned in the paper itself. So, so can you explain to everyone what these papers actually like? What these indices talk about? So, as uh, many of you have may have been seeing in the press recently uh, and over the recent years, <clears throat> that there are all these indices with on soft factors. So, things like you know freedom or press or academic freedom or democracy and all kinds of other happiness and so other fuzzy things. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm just pointing out to you that there are they, they, most of these topics are fuzzy and subjective and important as they may well be. But in order to quantify them, uh, a lot of effort has been put in by a bunch of uh, Western, mainly Western uh, think tanks in recent years uh, in order to try and quantify them. Now, some of these go back some decades, but I'm, I, I mean, th- this has clearly become more e- important in the last decade or so. Now, historically, India did always did poorly in them, by the way. Um, so it's not new that we have done poorly in them, but there has been something quite suspicious going on recently in that, particularly since 2014 and even more so since 2019, where India's index, uh, index rankings and scores, by the way, they're slightly different. One is ranking, the other is score. In both of them, in the India's rankings and scores have dipped uh, quite strongly in recent years. Now, the question is, why has this happened? So let me give you a flavor of some of these. There is an index which Swedish-based think tank called VDEM, I think, produces, which is on academic freedom. It just came out two, three weeks ago. And in that index, interestingly, India scores not just below Pakistan, but even below Afghanistan. Just think about it. So academic freedom in India is below Taliban-ruled Afghanistan. So let me tell you where our ranking is. Our ranking is in the uh, uh, bottom but one uh, decide, which is uh, basically the bottom uh, between the 80th and 90th decide. Okay, and Afghanistan and Pakistan are in the... Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, they're in the 60th or 70th decide. Now, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is <clears throat> we are in the same league as the as the likes of Yemen, for example, or other war-torn countries. And as I mentioned, worse than Taliban-controlled Afghanistan. Now, clearly, there is some problem with this. Now, this has also happened in the past. Uh, another index that very recently came out on press freedom, I think it came out just a few hours ago, if I'm not mistaken. In out of 180 countries, we are at 150. Okay, and roughly the same league as the likes of again war-torn countries like Libya, um, and so on. So, point is, there's clearly a problem. Now, historically, we ignored it. Even after our rankings went further down, we continued to ignore it, saying that look, what we really care about is uh, concrete things like GDP or whatever. But the point, the problem is that if we continue to ignore them, we also don't take into the account the fact that many of these things indirectly have concrete impact on us. So let me give you some examples of this. 
So the three indices which I used in my paper, which is the EIU index, the Freedom House index, and the VDEM index. Uh, and there are lots of sub-indices in them as well. Now, these indices and sub-indices are utilized by the World Bank's World Governance Indicators. Okay. Now, this World Governance Indicators then find its way into our sovereign ratings. In fact, we did some research when I was in finance ministry onto our sovereign ratings, and we discovered that between 18 to 20% of our sovereign rating is driven by these world governance indices. Okay. Now, obviously, it has a concrete impact. Quite apart from, of course, the fuzzier sort of uh, impact that it may have on our uh, global uh, standing and so on. Um, uh, but real concrete impact. Now, this is not just there. In addition to that, what we are ha what is happening is that this kind of approach to taking these fuzzy things into account is gathering steam worldwide. There's something called the ESG, which is Environmental Social Governance Indicators, which are increasingly being encouraged by, mostly by um, uh, uh, various kinds of NGO type uh, uh, interest groups to be included into concrete things like investment decisions by funds, by MNCs, and so on. Now, again, while they haven't fully been implemented yet, but do remember that as and when they do get implemented, they will become a part of the decision-making companies of multinational companies, of large uh, pension funds globally, and so on. And the, there is every likelihood that the same think tanks will then issue... Uh, kind of uh, these um, sort of ESG rankings based on a similar kind of framework. And we will become effectively uh, a, a prisoner of this uh, complex network of ESG requirements. Uh, we run entirely opaquely by these non-accountable, uh, non-transparent bodies. So I think there is every case of us pushing back. Otherwise, what is happening is that India and, of course, much of the global south will effectively end up being colonized again, this time not through by the sword, but by the pen. Now, uh, this bit I want to talk about because this... Uh... This uh, this whole idea of colonization is 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 something that I was also worried about. And aapne iske mein, actually social media pe bhi you had spoken about and I remember uh, I think it was on an interview also you had spoken about this. Now let us focus, focus on this. How is this new form of colonization working? But and why the let's say if I try to pre present the other side of the argument and try to push back so that there are more robust answers that no, this is not colonization. There are certain standards. There are global standards. We are living in a global standard-based world. So, so why is this uh, colonizing someone? Well, if that was the case, then you would say that these kinds of indices would be produced by a wide array of people. And then when they did produce it, it would be based on a wide range of opinion and so on. That is not the case at all. Almost all of these uh, indicators are produced from a very tiny number of uh, places, essentially from the North Atlantic. A uh, bunch of them are from the US. There are some UK-based ones and some Nordic ones. Not you won't even get one from the West as in coming from Spain or Greece or Poland. Okay, there are Some Nordic countries will have. There will be France and UK, maybe Germany, that you know, and the US. That is basically the uh, where all these think tanks are based. Uh, they are not even based in sort of uh, country, sort of developed countries which are not in that part of the world. So that you won't see the Singapore or Japan or um, you know uh, South Korea's opinion being asked. And in any case, why should only the developed world have these opinions? Uh, what about, uh, you know, developing countries? Um, why aren't there any Indian think tanks in there? Or, I mean, maybe you don't trust uh, uh, non-democracies, but what about democracies? Um, uh, and so basically what happens here is that an extremely small sliver of countries control the narrative. Then when they do try to supposedly do um, sort of uh, uh, what they would claim to be objective assessments, uh, do remember how they are doing this. They are essentially basing it on tiny numbers of people. So I discovered in the three indices, I discovered that between four to six experts' opinions are taken. 
Now, who are these experts is not told to us. Where do they live? What is the basis of the expertise? Nothing is told to us. Just random, uh, you know, it's basically, what would you think of an opinion poll uh, of a country of our size if you based it on opinions of six people? I mean, would you, wouldn't you laugh at it if you had an election opinion poll based on a survey of six people for Delhi municipal election? Right? Now, if that is the case, how, how are you basing it on uh, the opinions of six people? Who are these six people? And even more absurdly, um, how are you doing cross-country analysis? Because, you know, when you're ranking countries, those people don't really have to know about that country that they are ranking on. They have to be able to rank other countries in order to know where in the list it goes. So the entirely opaque systems are used in all of this. Now, one of these uh, guys, the, Euro, uh, the EIU, claims to be doing also some wider surveys. Now, we looked into this as well, and then we discovered that the survey for India has not been done since 2012. So just think about the sheer complete absurdity of how uh, we are all being ranked. They are not even doing the little bit of wider surveying they were supposed to do, even if you accept that these subjective things can be worked out through opinions and so on. And there are lots of problems with how you translate these questions, etc. But even if you accept their methodology, they are not being true to it themselves. You know, one disturbing aspect uh, in the paper that stood out for me, in the freedom in the world index was that, and I'm quoting from the report itself, your essay, paper itself, that the report considers Jammu and Kashmir as a separate territory from India and gives it separate ranking since 1990. As per the latest report, territory of Jammu and Kashmir is considered as not free. I mean, uh, how can India as a nation, then actually my first question is, don't you think then we should not be taking these people seriously at all in that sense that they are even questioning the territorial integrity of our nation? So, so there is serious issues with this, uh, as you point out that uh, you know we are we don't. But the problem, as I said right in the beginning, is not about us taking it seriously. See, if you do not rise up and begin questioning their methodology, this is beginning to infect things that affect us. So, <clears throat> uh, for example, Freedom House—that's the one you are quoting—it doesn't even consider uh, uh, Jammu and Kashmir as part of India, and it issues a separate report on this. And this same Freedom House, incidentally, uh, is also going around uh, uh, ranking the likes of North, uh, um, uh, North Cyprus, which is, by the way, under occupation by the Turks. And you will be amused to know that uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the rankings of democracy that some of these, uh, these indices do, uh, North uh, uh, Cyprus... Uh, is actually ranked above us in, in one or two of these indices. Now, let me just point out where North Cyprus is, because some of the um, audience may not be aware of this. Now, Cyprus is an island in, in the eastern Mediterranean. Its majority population is Greek. But somewhere in the 50s or 60s, uh, I forget exactly when, maybe it was the 70s, uh, somewhere several decades ago, um, Turkey invaded Cyprus and took over the northern one-third of it. And it kicked out all the Greek Cypriots and basically set up a client state there. This northern Cyprus is incidentally not recognized by the UN or any other country other than Turkey. Okay. It has also con incidentally con uh, carried out ethnic cleansing because it's thrown out its entire Greek population from there. This place is ranked, incident, uh, ironically, higher than India on the democracy index. So, I mean, what credibility can it have? So, I, I mean, absolutely none. However, here comes the point. You know, our, our old approach was just ignore this. You know, they, they don't matter, etc. But as I'm pointing out to you, you have to care what they do. Because effectively, what is happening is that they are indirectly influencing concrete things like our sovereign ratings. And if we do not push back, these same think tanks in other will create other indices which will have other, like the ESG indices or other things, which will then uh, end up uh, impacting us. So I think if we do not push back now, we will end up being in, ending up in a new form of colonization where our global narrative will be, uh, uh, and our global standing and actual concrete things like trade and investment 
will be impacted uh, significantly by this web of uh, opinion-based and clearly agenda-driven uh, rankings. Something, another thing that I found very disturbing right after you have mentioned this point was in the, it's, it's, it's at the end of page 10 of the PDF and start of page 11, where uh, you say the report notes that, quote, Muslim candidates notably won 27 of 545 seats in the 2019 Lok Sabha elections, up from 22 previously. However, and this is where I add the Kahanima twist bit. And this, this just blew my mind away that they actually twisted the report like this. And I'm reading again. However, this amounted to just 5% of the seats in the chamber, whereas Muslims make up some 14% of the population. Note that the number of seats after that you have written, number of seats have increased over the years. So it's not clear how the situation has worsened over time. Now I want to connect this to a larger question. Now we enter, as you have clearly beautifully mentioned in the entire analysis, that there are objective parameters. And then there are subjective parameters. And what a lot of these reports rely on are vague questions and which are so subjective that it can be, you know, interpreted anyway. And, and already social science has a replication, uh, you know, uh, problem where I think it was in the field of psychology that more than 50% of actual real world claims made in social sciences and psychology are not being replicated to. In, in, in such a larger pressure on social sciences as a subject, if you have things like these. So my question to you is that when you have these kinds of rating based on, I, I don't want to use the word unscientific because I'm careful here, but on irresponsible metrics, then how do we explain to the world at large that these, these measurements itself are irresponsible? So there are serious problems with the questionnaires they're using. As I said, first of all, those questionnaires only go to some four to six people. Uh, supposed experts, who we are not told who those experts are. But even if we assumed that those experts were genuine experts and they were doing their job uh, unbiased, etc. Um, a strong assumption, incidentally. But nevertheless, let's say they were doing that. Even then, the questionnaires themselves are bizarre. And there are different kinds of problems. So one kind of problem, let me start. There are three kinds of broad problems, but let me take you through them one by one. One of the problems is that they ask questions which are so generic that even if you and I agreed on something, we will end up actually marking them on the scale in different ways. So for example, let's, uh, let's provide a question like, is your society corrupt or something like that? Okay. Now, even if we agreed that on the level of corruption that India had, uh, if I asked you to uh, rank it on a scale of 10 to 0, uh, very likely we are going to give very different scores because these are things, you, you know, it's a completely, how do you score something like, is your country corrupt? Is corruption a major problem or something like that? Now, not only are individual countries, it's impossible to put a number to this. Now you are asking different countries to mark them as well. So. Uh, somebody sitting in Nigeria is being asked the same question. Somebody sitting in Australia is being asked the same question. And, you know, so how are these all comparable? You know, it depends on lots of things. How strict that person's perceptions are. Uh, what are his or her expectations about the world? What are they comparing it as being the ideal? Who knows? So, first of all, some of these subjective things are just so subjective that you can't have a meaningful... Um, uh, numerical number to it that is cro uh, comparable cross-country. So there's one problem. Then there are questions that are clearly inappropriate to the context. So example, there is one sub-index in which India gets zero. Okay. So how does it get zero? Because the sub-index is of direct uh, democracy. Now, obviously, direct democracy is a meaningful thing if you are a small European country like Switzerland where direct democracy, you know, you can go to your whatever, you can directly do referendums. Now, India obviously is not going to do direct referendums on things too often. So we, we have to rely on indirect uh, forms of democracy by definition. Um, and uh, uh, so India gets zero on this. Switzerland is, by the way, the highest score, uh, scoring country on this basis. But what is extraordinary is that you have countries like Cuba and Afghanistan again, popping up and actually scoring something. They score 0.2 on this. We score zero. Um, I think um, uh, 
Switzerland scores 0.69 and uh, Cuba and uh, Afghanistan score 0.2. Now, that's nuts. I mean, how on earth are these countries even remotely democratic? Forget about being direct democracies, right? So that is another kind of thing where questions are inappropriate uh, for a large country. And then also, even within there, you get these largely absurd answers. And then there are a third class of problems where the type of questions you asked that are not asked. So supposing you are asking about democracy. Now, one an obvious question that you would like to ask in that context is, is your head of state elected, right? It should be a, 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 a Raj, you know, I don't think too many would, people would say that that is not a part of the democratic setup, whether or not your head of state is democratically elected. Now, it turns out that this question is not asked. Why is it not asked? Well, if you did ask it, then a very large number of countries would get very low marks or zero on that. For example, all the uh, constitutional monarchies in the Nordic countries, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, the, the Benelux countries, um, Spain, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, I could go on. The point is there are large, and all these countries, by the way, are very high up in the democracy index. Because that's because you define democracy in a particular way. Now, if you have defined democracy in a particular way, then, uh, you know, then basically, you, in fact, one of the funny things about democracy, the index is that almost all the top spots are taken by constitutional monarchies. There are very few republics in there. In fact, the, the, the result of the democracy index is that being a republic is a bad thing for democracy. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, you get these completely ridiculous outcomes. And we are supposed to not question them at all. So I think it's important to push back against the methodology. Now, there are people like Salvatoros Baboris, um, who's a professor in Australia, who have raised a lot of questions about the uh, inputs that go into these, and particularly the opinions of, um, of various uh, 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 experts that are being used. Uh, and his view is that, you know, Indians let themselves down. Indian intellectuals are providing, you know, uh, uh, obviously uh, uh, tilted and biased views. He's right. But I think he is being way too kind to the methodology. He's not, he is almost assuming that these methodologies are actually acceptable methodologies. Therefore, I have a somewhat different view from him. My view is, yes, there is a lot of biases in what the Indian um, open, uh, uh, sort of uh, so-called experts are uh, giving in, uh, but uh, I think the 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 um, uh, the methodologies themselves stink. And uh, if even if we end up with reasonable experts on India, we would still end up looking bad because of the way the methodologies are set up. So I think you know if we want to push back against colonization of this kind. We've got to begin questioning methodology as well, because otherwise we are becoming uh, subservient to a um, to a narrative and a framework uh, that is clearly being set up in a way that uh, is prejudices uh, against us right in the beginning, even before the game starts. I couldn't agree more with you because, in fact, when Salvatore had come on the podcast, uh, I, I did raise this uh, problem with him and I said, you're being too charitable to to these organizations. And uh, so, uh, in fact, I'll pull your paper up itself on the screen to to make your point even better. Like, just look at these questions. Like, it, I, I had to mark number three. I mean, what does this even mean? Extent to which adult population shows an interest in and follows politics in the news. I mean, ye kis kisam ka standard hai, yaar. I mean, imagine if somebody somebody says, I don't like politics, it's too negative. I just want to uh, watch cricket or football or whatever sport I like to watch. It is almost as if that country is a problem. And secondly, I, I don't know if they, they ever consider this as a factor, voting percentages. India on average, uh, Sanjeev, you also know that, has a very high participation of people in terms of people who go out and actually vote during an election, uh, whether it's Lok Sabha, whether it's Vidhan Sabha, whether it's a municipal election or Gram Panchayat elections. Indians do go out and vote a lot. So isn't that 
also a factor when we calculate these kinds of like what is the bottom line at the end of the day how enthusiastic are people in terms of how much they want to participate in the dance of democracy and the only gauge where we can gauge it is voting percentage in fact if we look at the western world leave australia which has compulsory voting because they don't have a choice they have to go and vote i mean uh, doesn't this matter and in fact india should rate much higher uh, uh, be rated much higher than most western countries which have abysmally low voting percentages absolutely in fact how can you even say that indians are not interested in politics go to any chai dukan anywhere in the country sit there and look at what the politics is being discussed the problem is even in the way they define what news is you see i may be very interested in my rwa politics is that not politics i mean i don't know uh, is it only about electoral politics um i may be very interested in my panchayat politics but not interested in my state politics uh, all kind i may be interested in national politics i don't care about my state politics uh, all kinds of combinations and permutations will be there and that is what democracy is about allowing people to take on whatever it is they think uh, matters in their life so i think these kind you can you know the whole thing is utterly laughable i wouldn't have bothered to go in there and spend my time on writing this paper but for the fact that i noticed that beyond just fuzzy uh, impressions that it may be impacting it is now uh, it has an impact on things for some time you know on um, things like uh, sovereign ratings but now this business of esgs is important and 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 the other thing that really irritated me is in many of these indices incidentally india's current rankings are as bad as they were under emergency so i mean this is completely nuts i mean how could how could you even imagine the restrictions placed on indian uh, freedoms uh, uh, during say covid uh, and by the way those have been long lifted now uh, and compare them to those political uh, restrictions that you had during emergency number one number two those kinds of restrictions were, were widely uh, placed across the world how is india different and in fact if anything a responsible government and a democratic responsible government would have placed some restrictions during covid so i mean i simply boggles my mind how uh, you know we would have ended up being ranked at, at an emergency level of uh, you know uh, loss of freedom uh, during uh, for restrictions put during covid and as i mentioned every other sensible country in the world did it uh, many of those incidentally who do these indices are ironically in favor of uh, all kinds of things like vac- vaccine mandates which uh, some people may argue is not uh, uh, you know is not uh, democratic at all so the point i'm making is these are fuzzy things and we wouldn't have bothered about them at all but for the fact that they actually have concrete impact talking about fuzzy let us look at this is there media bias against opposition parties or candidates how can this be part of something that is calculating any any kind of no, objective there how do you put numbers to this i i don't know that's what i got shocked when i read this paper and jab aapne ye sab share kiya and and then the next one of the major print and broadcast outlets how many routinely criticize the government <laughs> I don't know well, what in, is... in India though every, you know you look at it every other day there's how evil the government is uh, whether at state or central level I mean, we got literally the most noisy uh, press there ever is and uh, in fact the complaint usually is that the noisy ones are the ones that are pro government you got to be kidding me um, you know why are they noisy if everybody agreed it would be rather quiet wouldn't it it would become like durdashan yeah and this is what disappoints me particularly durdashan of the 1980s where of course everybody agreed because you know everybody on the screen was uh, you know well paid for by the state so you know if you have a very quiet and uh, 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 media uh, particularly television media and if your debates are all very quiet the likelihood is that you are north korea now what scares me the most is and and i know you have mentioned it but i i still want to talk a little bit more about this is this whole methodology that you, they use the methodology the devil always lies in the details now i noticed this even and, and by the way i know in social science uh, research this is a very common practice where newspaper articles are culled out and are used as a larger um, 
standard to gauge what's happening in society so i'm aware of that it's not that i'm not aware but what happens is like i always say this to my friends in, outside india especially in america canada or england i tell them india is literally two worlds if you look read english papers something is happening which is on one side of the field and then if you read regional language newspapers let's say for example hindi you will think india is a completely different country and these are just left at the discretion of the editor of what they pick and obviously whether people like it or not these are business houses too they are running a business so they are only going to publish things which they assume their viewers or readers are going to like and consume so it is also market driven now most of these surveys from what i have understood i i read one paper that was that french world press freedom index so i i actually did the torture of going through that one i read their entire questionnaire and everything so what i realized that a lot of these people they only rely on english news outlets and english news outlets anybody who's even a char saal ka bachcha will know that english news outlets lean in a particular way ideologically now after that if they only see don't i mean isn't there a complete sampling bias itself absolutely and so here is the thing um there is a problem here obviously with india's old elite which basically is largely english speaking um you know Uh, descended from the old british uh, collaborator class and their uh, sort of a world view which has dominated to a large extent india's in- intellectual life uh, till the last decade or so this uh, english speaking collaborator class uh, has historically um, not only tilted in a particular way but they have also had these well established multi generational linkages with uh global academia global pu- publishing houses think tanks and so on and so therefore a certain kind of narrative is continuously fed uh, at that level now if there were genuine uh researchers uh and you know it doesn't require genius to know that this sort of thing is going on um they would obviously reach out past the english language and also past the certain uh, social class to find out what the wider world thinks uh and uh, clearly no effort in that direction has been made um at all so i think uh, this is a rather absurd situation um and do remember that in india uh, the ruling party continuously loses elections i mean in the last in the last uh couple of weeks uh, the national ruling party lost uh, um uh, you know the uh, municipal election in delhi which was deemed to be very important uh, by some people and then also a state election in himachal so clearly that you know if 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 it was so one sided and india was uh, you know 150th in press freedom and so on uh, that is not the circumstances you would expect uh, to see now this quote bothered me the most in the entire paper and i'm reading it from the paper and this uh, the this is a direct quote from a report again the overall freedom and fairness of elections elections free and fair also was hard hit with the last elections held under prime minister modi's reign in 2019 precipitating a downgrading to an electoral autocracy abhi main tumko hindi mein bolna inko sharam bhi nahi aayi aisi cheez bolne mein nahi nahi so electoral autocracy means what i mean that is the most stunning part of it if it is a, you know by by definition uh, an ele- election is about the majority electing somebody uh, if it is an ele- what do you whatever does it mean uh, they had to actually invent a completely new oxymoron to be able to express uh, th- this uh, so i mean the utter absurdity of some of the things they are they are trying to push through is ridiculous uh, that's all i have to say and because they, they, they you know even with their biased subjective frameworks when they are unable to fight push back they have to invent completely new frameworks like electoral autocracy because they it's obvious that they have already decided what is the which box you want have to put you in and then if it doesn't fit you just relabel you know change the label on the box till it works to serve their agenda and you know what hurts the most is like literally ek mahina new i have come back from north america 
आई हैव सीन उधर अभी मिड टर्म इलेक्शन जो है उधर पता नहीं उनकी काउंटिंग ही नहीं खत्म होती खत्म ही नहीं, नहीं होती चलती रहती है चलती रहती है और यहाँ पे तीन अलग अलग इलेक्शन हुए हैं इतनी जल्दी काउंटिंग हुई है द ट्रांसफर ऑफ पावर फ्रॉम वन आउटफिट टू दी अदर हैज बीन सो स्मूथ इन इंडिया एंड इन स्पाइट ऑफ दैट आई मीन एक होती है हमारी लिव्ड रियलिटी जो हम देख रहे हैं नो बडी हियर इज सेंग इंडिया इज सम परफेक्ट you know paradise nobody is making that point but when when i read something like this i'm like yaar it's so hard to even take these things seriously before i take a few uh, questions uh, i just had one last thing i i have to ask you this when you actually read these three indices or rankings what was your first reaction <laughs> No, I knew to start with that there was something absurd. I mean, I I am not uh, I'm not in the political science space, but I am an economist and I work in 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 with data all the time. So I don't have to uh, you know I know even before I've gotten into it that you know there was something utterly absurd about it. I had not applied my mind to a great extent to this before because this is not my space really. I'm more looking at. finance and national accounts and external accounts and um you know stuff like that exchange rates and things like that uh, so those are more my area so i don't really delve into these fuzzy uh socio political type of indicators uh, as part of my job but i do deal enough with data all the time that i can tell that there's something fishy about the whole thing even before i got into it so as i said the only reason i really began to take it seriously because this began to nudge against things i use i i get involved in like sovereign ratings for example right it's it's a sovereign ratings is a hard thing it has impact on the cost of uh, our cost of borrowing it has impact on on the way investments flow into this country our global standing and so on and so forth these are concrete things which i um uh, when i was as the principal economic advisor and now as economic advisor to the prime minister i have to deal with this so um i began to see this appearing these fuzzy things appearing at the edges so you know i assume that maybe the world bank does its due diligence and so on but as these numbers continue to be uh, become worse and worse i began to say okay let me go and look at what is actually going on here and so i then i began digging these up i found all these uh, ridiculous things um but let me tell you uh there is actually a similar bias that is there also in the hard data based indices as well this paper does not get into it but i will give you some examples of how even in some things which are supposedly based on hard data there's something very fishy about the way uh, it is uh, the indian indices uh, anything related to india come pops up in international uh, uh, indicators uh, and let me take one indicator of that which is the hdi uh, which is the human development index uh, it's a fairly widely used index it's not an uncommon index and in there it's quite interesting that india's ranking has basically been flat for many many years i mean for long time now clearly our quality of life has gone up uh, i mean india 30 years ago was quite different from what it is today uh now you may argue okay uh, it's uh, it's a ranking other countries have improved now that is a little shaky because uh, you know our uh, share of global gdp and our our level as part of uh, our, uh, the indian per capita income is part of, uh, as a share of global per, per capita income has gone up so that's a bit shaky but even then even our scores were at least going up even if they were going up slowly but in the last one or two years they've actually gone down so not only has our ranking gone down a little bit our score actually absolute score has also gone down so i i got into this and i wrote an article about this uh, also uh, in times of india about a month and a half or two ago i think it was in november i wrote it and in there it's again very interesting what you find so the human development index is made up of three bits one is on uh, human capital which is much mostly data relating to schooling uh, there is the um uh, per capita gdp uh, as calculated in ppp by the world bank and there is a third category which is on life expectancy at birth okay now world bank ppp let's leave it aside that you know we can quibble about it but broadly i think it's where most people agree it should be 
the schooling also has a problem with the data i won't get into it because because you know that's more complicated but let me explain the one where the biggest anomaly is and it's rather simple to understand also so it turns out that india till covid hit us had a life expectancy at birth of 70.1 ie a child boy born in 2019 an indian child was expected to live to 70 years of age okay okay fine we all accept this uh, i'm not disputing this at all now what happens is that this number is cut by 3 years 3 years in the latest report in 2022 in other words an indian <clears throat> is now expected to be living only till 67 years now let me tell you why this is an absurd calculation remember first of all there's a conceptual problem because <clears throat> you see a child born today or rather even in the middle of the delta uh, uh, wave let's say that child was not going to be affected by covid almost all the oh, everything suggests that children are not affected by covid very much so by saying that this child's life expectancy at birth is being impacted what they are basically saying is that for the next 20 that child for the next 20 years when he reaches adulthood when covid will begin to impact him we will still have this covid uh, pandemic going on right so first of all that's completely conceptually a wrong idea number one number two what they did here was even more fishy they basically then took these numbers from a model of how much they thought was the number of excess deaths india had now this was completely based on something very very fishy based not on any data that we provided or even surveys that they did it was based on a model which so which is basically something pulled out of thin air which then which we had disputed when those data had come out when and anyway they used it still the un used it and they used that model and then they further adjusted it to come up with a number of what our mortality rate is now firstly there's a big problem with that in its own right but even after you take their data okay this is where it gets really funny even if i if i took their data and i've written about this in this in this uh, times of india edit editorial even if we take their distorted data and you have to divide it by population in order to get the per capita then also we actually don't do as bad as many countries like the us and uh, germany you know many as european countries that were hit heavily by covid or peru and these countries but in no as none of those countries has life expectancy been adjusted back down so sharply methodology entirely allow for all their biases you still cannot come up with our life expectancy at birth and i put this up i sent this up to the undp who collates this and asked for an answer to explain how they have they haven't still answered our questions so we'll see this is actually mind boggling that somebody would actually use that i remember the covid deaths and uh, saga at that time i had read all these reports that were calculating the covid deaths i mean seriously it is it was nothing short of insane what was happening under the garb of covid deaths like i was following the mumbai numbers like a hawk every single day and it, it was insane i even wrote about it myself to counter the whole covid deaths thing but yeah it is what it is so i i want to take a few questions because i know we we have to wrap up in uh, like 10 15 minutes so uh the entire viewership is like uh most of them are like okay how does india as a nation now not just uh, so the government will uh, respond in its own way and so what how does an average citizen deal with this because we live in a global world right so actually two three people have asked this question like when i go outside india or we how do we respond to such accusations when they are hurled at us using these indices without getting excited in a calm manner so first of all the thing that i am trying to do is to make you aware of how biased they are and how absurd they are because <clears throat> otherwise you will know that there's something wrong about them but there's no answer you have so first of all we wrote it down at the prime minister's economic council put it down on paper and published it you know it's one thing to come out here in kushal mehra show or wherever else and talk about it unless you've got it in a place which can be properly uh, quoted by other writers so you have to publish it properly so that's basically the first thing we did 
put it in a working paper um properly formatted with all the links and references etc anybody who d- doesn't agree with us is very welcome to go and check up what it is and write their counter if they think so or they can build on this if they agree with it and write other papers so put it down read these papers and understand what the issues are so that's the first step the second thing is we have got to get indian think tanks to begin to produce indices this is an important thing you see for far too long we have always been allowing the rest of the world particularly the west to allow to give us certification and they of course extract a rent for that certification now unless we begin to go and turn the gaze our gaze on the rest of the world and begin to uh, uh, punch our own weight i mean vdem is a it's it's a think tank from sweden sweden is a non country i mean it's tiny its economic weight its social weight its political weight is nothing and yet they have the confidence to go around the world and you know certify the rest of the world give them nobel prizes so clearly they punch above their weight by doing certain kinds of activity now we as a country we'll come to the government later but as a country we now need to begin to get the confidence to go out there we we seem to crave certification from the rest of the world um like we we send a official entry to oscars why i mean does the us send an official entry to our ifa awards no so this is an important part of the approach uh, that we have got to have that we've got to be willing to go out there and turn our gaze against uh, at the world and dissect them and i'm uh, at least for a while i could see the wyon and particularly palki used to do this and i thought that was a very successful effort but we need to do it as a country not individual efforts are good but we need to be willing to dissect the rest of the world turn our gaze on the rest of the world and and you know be willing to give up give opinions on it we are the world's fifth largest economy by dollar value third largest economy by Uh, ppp terms we will even in dollar terms soon be the third largest economy we are the world's largest population or there almost will be very soon we need to be confident enough to you know uh, issue uh, opinions on the state of the world and good news is that in very recent times we have begun doing that and you see that with um, uh, external affairs minister jay shankar finally you know uh, making clear pushback and you know putting our view uh, in front very clearly and succinctly uh, without preaching by the way uh, without being preachy we need to be willing to uh, sort of understand and dissect the rest of the world in our own terms i mean for example the canadians had an opinion on uh, the indian um, farmers movement uh, we should also have an opinion on uh, the truckers uh, um, strikes in canada and the way they were brutally put down using emergency powers by the way uh, nothing like that was done in india just imagine if india had used similar emergency powers to put down the farmers agitation i mean so i think we need to be uh, you know we need to ask questions of the rest of the world and uh, you know that's uh, that's how it is another uh, thing somebody has asked that uh, there is a pattern when all these indices and rankings are done so the viewer has asked that they always prepare these questionnaires and they always ask these questions to a certain set of people these are you know uh, self anointed uh, uh, experts i don't know how what else to say and always the questions are thrown to them so does uh, does the society and the government then at large have a responsibility to maybe expose the people at large to other sets of intellectuals then that okay these people are also there they do robust work like how do we counter this because they always clearly go to a fixed set of people and they are always going to give a fixed set of answers no matter what absolutely um so unfortunately this space is taken over but as i said a very well established and entrenched collaborator class which has been ex- in existence by the way from pre independence period and many of these people are direct descendants of these collaborator uh, class um um uh, so uh, while i don't want to take names uh, you can guess who they are and um, we have some sense of who these people are uh, although as i said the names are not announced but we have some sense of who they are but i think the it's 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 a uh, 
I don't think India as a country should be going out there and behaving like a supplicant to these think tanks. The better thing for me, which I think should be done, is for India to ask organizations that give them legitimacy um, uh, to look at this. So let me illustrate my point. Um, for example, if um, the legitimacy of uh, indices like VDEM and Freedom Index, etc., comes from the World Bank providing it backing by introducing, including it in the World Governance Indicators, then it is for us to ask the World Bank why it uses these indicators. Ask the World Bank to go out there and ask these think tanks about their methodology, ask them about the credibility and ask them for transparency. I don't think we should be, as India, going as supplicants to these think tanks. That's a very bad approach, number one. Number two, as and when we in India and the broader, broader global south begin to produce our own index indices in the rest of the world, we should ask that the UN, the World Bank, IMF, etc., include in their basket um, indices produced by the global south. Uh, as I said, this has got to be part of uh, the pushback that we do. And we need to do it as, as a routinely. It's not just a government thing. Of course, some areas like with the case of international institutions, the government will have to do it. But I think this pushback has got to be a common reflex done by um, people in general, not, not, not just by the government. Now, a lot of people are also worried about the these indices and their second order and third order effects in the sense of like, what e economic impact could these indices have in terms of sanctions and other things? So... I mean, your background is economic. So do you think we might, we these indices in the long run could actually uh, have uh, a more than disproportionate economic impact on us as a nation? Well, as I said, uh, these indices are used in a fuzzy way. Um, once in, sometimes, of course, they become concrete things through, as I, as, through the roots I mentioned, both um, the sovereign ratings or other other indicators, um, yeah, the ESG indicators could also become. But you know, you get beaten down with it in various places. You, whether it's trade negotiations or the behavior of uh, uh, NGOs or uh, and and you know, in all kinds of fuzzy areas, you will begin to be influenced by this. So I think uh, the approach we have taken in the past, which is to simply ignore them, uh, was wrong. I think we do need to take them seriously. Uh, very often, these things are, by the way, funded by, uh, uh, we also need to take into account who they fund these things. You will find, for example, there is a Soros's Open Society, which is a major funder to many of these think tanks. Uh, that is, it's a very common thread through many of the think tanks that, that you will see. Um, we need to question why, uh, you know, a, a billionaire and a, a funded um, a private entity should have uh, so much disproportionate influence in the way the world is run without any democratic uh, accountability of his or own, uh, own as well. I mean, so it's, since they're making such a fuss about democracy, what is the democratic credentials of George Soros? Uh, uh, at least in the case of, uh, uh, you know, countries in which he's not a national. Uh, is this not a case of trying to influence and uh, um, regime change and things like that? I think we need to ask those questions. Then, there are many of these indices where they have state funding. Freedom House, for example, 85% of its funding comes from the US government. I do think that um, we need to have a conversation, not just as a government to government. I think there's to be general conversation with those who care about uh, transparency, about how these uh, opinions are uh, reached. All right, one last question and we'll wrap it up. So somebody, someone has said, Sanjeev, sir, there are genuine rankings as well regarding corruption, development, treatment of religious minorities uh, and how journalists are treated. Uh, do you think they can be considered in the long run or maybe we have to build all these things from our own end and we start looking at the, the world from our prism and that's the only long-term solution? Absolutely. We need to do this. We need to look at the world from our prism. And this is a major problem in the way, generally speaking, this is not just in the case of indices. This is a general problem in, unfortunately, I think we, as a country who have been, we've been ruled for so long by foreigners and then later by foreign ideologies, that we don't seem to have the confidence in dissecting the rest of the world. 
And this is not just true of these index, these indices. We do this, we have this problem with everything. So if we, for example, have an award for something, we need some foreign guy to come and become the chairman of that, say, as happened with the movie awards recently. Uh, we don't seem to have the confidence of doing it ourselves for some reason. Uh, similarly, if we read our history books, okay, you will hear that Hwing Sang said something and Megasthenes said something and Pahian said something and Sleeman said something and, um, you know, so-and-so French traveler, Tavernier said something. Hello, what about what we said about ourselves? And you, in fact, never hear about what we said about the rest of the world. I mean, at least maybe you will include what is there. I mean, Indians were traveling around the world too and we had opinions about the rest of the world. Where are our opinions about the rest of the world in any of the conversation? So I think we need to have this, uh, we need to be confident about turning our eyes on the West. Now, I think a generation is coming up that is, um, you know, whether it's through social media and uh, uh, the Google or through actually having traveled abroad or studied abroad, uh, we, ha we have now seen the rest of the world. I mean, I have lived a very large part of my life abroad. I, my my post-graduation was done in Oxford, one of the best universities in the world. I then spent many years living in, in other countries, like including particularly in Singapore, but uh, traveling and working for a, one of, uh, you know, working uh, for Europe's largest bank for many years uh, at senior positions. I've seen the rest of the world. I have actually a fairly good feel of what the rest of the world is about. Um, and I think that uh, that class of people is growing. And, uh, you know, my age group, maybe it will still be a relatively small number. But I think by the time you're looking at people in their late 20s and 30s, there is a sizable number who uh, have studied abroad, come back or continue to live abroad, um, who work for international agencies uh, and companies who have traveled uh, extensively. I think this um, lack of confidence about turning our gaze on the rest of the world is slowly going to be eroded away. I think the time therefore has come when we begin to write about the rest of the world uh, it's about time, for example, if, if William Dalrymple can come and write about India and in you know, a sort of slightly mocking sort of way, uh, I think we should have Indians going abroad and writing, where is our equivalent, you know, traveling around the US or the UK and writing about them? I couldn't agree more. And I think that is the only long-term solution where I think eventually we as a nation have to look uh, beyond this. First of all, uh, I... It was it was amazing that at least somebody wrote a working paper on these three indices and and uh, so before we wrap it up, uh, Sanjeev, can we expect more such papers from you now, looking at these different ratings and breaking them down? Look, there is a limitation to how much I personally can do, and this is one part of many many other things I do. So uh, you know there is a limit to how much I personally. What we need to do is that the wider intellectual class, whether it is Indian think tanks, Indian academia, uh, and, and, and maybe even general citizens, I don't know, uh, people who are interested in these kinds of topics now need to stand up and begin writing these things and have the confidence of taking these things on. There's nothing very deep in it. This took me a few weeks of hard work. I agree. Akanksha and I poured through all of this, but much of this material, ironically, is just available right there. I mean, uh, you know, it's as I said, this is not an area I normally work in. Um, but uh, even then, uh, it requires a, a few weeks of Google and hunting around and understanding the kind of language they use. And uh, I was able to put out this paper. It's now been out for a couple of weeks. I haven't yet seen anybody coming out with any sensible retort to anything, any point I have made, suggesting to me that it's very likely that I have it right. Um, I, we wrote to many of these agencies in some cases, uh, including in the case of the HDI case, we wrote to the UNDP and so on, and we asked for answers. And so we have included what we think is a genuinely clear um, exposition of the topic. It's not, you know, I don't think there are uh, any major errors in our paper and nobody has pointed out any so far anyway. Um, therefore, I don't think this is some uh, sort of impossible task. Uh, there must be many people listening in uh, here who are capable of, if they're willing to put in a little bit of effort, take on, you know, take another index uh, somewhere in there. Today, there's one that came out in Press Freedom or there was one on academic freedom that came out two weeks ago. Take them on, uh, dig in, find out what's going on. How did they come up with this? Very often, uh, the, the, uh, the questionnaires are already there. 
um, the methodologies are there. Take them on. Don't rely on me to be digging through all of them. I just don't have the mind space to keep digging in this. I've made I made an illustrative case. Hopefully, some some effort, some some degree, I have managed to gain converts. But don't think that the government is the only uh, sort of engine of change. You know, India's in wider intellectual class has to rise to the challenge. I, I couldn't agree more, and uh, that's why the, the the French press freedom index was something Abhijit and I did personally go through, and we broke down the whole thing. And I agree, we need to do more and more of this. Uh, you know, it was an absolute pleasure to uh, to finally have you on the podcast, Sanjeev. And uh, here's to wish, uh, here's wishing that uh, this will uh, there will be many more such conversations. And really looking forward to your next book too, because I always read your books. Yes, my next book is out uh, in about a month's time. It's on revolutionary movement. The book is called Revolutionary, the other story of how India won its freedom. Awesome. Awesome. Really looking forward to that. Or my book, then I'll call you again and then we'll discuss the book. So once again, Sanjeev, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Kushal. And um, see you soon. All right, guys, we'll wrap today's podcast up. So before we wrap it up, once again, in the description of the podcast, there is a link to download this working paper. I would encourage each and every one of you, click the link, download the paper, read it, take excerpts out of it, cite it in your blogs or in your shorts on YouTube or wherever you do, do this. That's how you create what uh, what I call citation loops. Cite the paper freely everywhere. It's there. The download link is there. So please download it. The rest, you know the drill. Please follow me on YouTube or Spotify or uh, support the Charvak podcast on Fanmo. Uh, or Patreon. I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye-bye.